0: Larry McMurtry, and I want to welcome you to the second of Penn's evenings devoted to a region of our continent. Last year, about this time, many of you I think were here, we did the Pacific, we had six riders from the Pacific Northwest. Uh, Today, um, tonight, we're going to do the great, we're going to bring you six riders from the Great Plains. Uh, The Great Plains is a much less containable region, definable region, really, than the Pacific Northwest. Um, It's my region. Uh, It's a region that I've spent most of my life in. And I live at the absolute southern foot of it. Every single person reading tonight is somewhere up what one scholar has called the ladder of rivers, mostly way up it in Montana, Wyoming, North Dakota, Minnesota um cetera. I'm not going to say much about these writers. I'm going to let them either talk to you or read to you about their feelings about the Plains, um, uh, and, and do whatever they would like to do. And the first reader, our talker, will be Gretel Ehrlich, currently of Shell, Wyoming, the author of a book, a very fine memoir, called The Solace of Open Spaces, and a novel called Heart Mountain. Gretel Ehrlich.
1: I don't really live on the plains. I live on a high desert at a high altitude. Um, We don't have grass. We have cactus and rattlesnakes. (laughs) Um, I, re- I really would prefer to read because I think it hopefully gives a better sense of my relationship to where I live. I'll just tell you that I live, I've live i lived in Wyoming for 15 years on working cattle and sheep ranches and um, it's been a relationship um, mostly humbling um, in which I'm usually on my hands and knees begging for mercy either from the weather or from an animal that's trying to <laughs> Do me and um, so it, so my relationship to the to the place and to the plants and animals is um, extremely intimate um, somewhat passionate um, and also pragmatic since we run cattle and do other things we We work very hard to uh, find ways to use the land that um, also restores the land instead of um, kind of the frontier mentality of taking all the grass and moving on. Uh, we've pretty much entered a new era of um, land management. Um, and I guess the what, what I've really learned from living there, um, I live in a, on a quite isolated mountain ranch, is that um, I've really learned a sense of equality and mutuality between myself and the communities of plants and animals. Um, it's, it's simply not a, um, a situation where the human dominates the landscape in any way. Um, it's not my garden. It's a kind of wild place in which we all act wildly. <laughs> and. Um, and it also has taught me that death is the companion of life constantly, and uh, life is the companion of death. Those are things that you live with every day on a ranch and everywhere. It's just easier to ignore it in other places. Um, and I, I always tell students that I consider um, our place a sort of laboratory, except that the it's a laboratory where the the so-called scientists uh, are doing their their experiments on me and not the other way around. But in that kind of crazy relationship, um, I guess I I um, am constantly seeing the ways in which natural fact translates into human meaning, meaning and that there is um, an equivalency between those two things going on all the time. So the, the place becomes my teacher, as well as a mirror for whatever is going on in my psyche. So I'm going to read um, a, a sort of expurgated version of, since we can't read very long tonight, of, of um, an essay that's coming out in a new book of narrative essays called This Autumn Morning. When did all this happen, this rain and snow bending green branches, this turning of light to shadow in my throat, these bird notes going flat? And how did these sawtooth willow leaves unscrew themselves from the twig and the hard, bright paths trampled into the hills, loosen themselves to mud? When did the wind begin begin churning inside trees, and why did the sixty-million-year-old mountains start looking like two uplifted hands, holding and releasing the gargled, whistling, echoing grunts of bull elk? And when did the loose fires inside me begin not to burn? Wasn't it only last week in August that I saw the stained glass of a monarch butterfly clasping a purple thistle flower, then rising as if a whole cathedral had taken flight? Now, what looks like smoke is only mare's tails, clouds streaming. And as the season changes, my young dog and I wonder if raindrops might not be made of shattered lightning. It's September. Light is on the wane. There is no fresh green breast of earth to embrace, none of that. Just to breathe is a kind of violence against death. To long for love, to have experienced passion's deep pleasure even once is to understand the mercilessness of having a human body whose memory rides desires back unanchored from season to season. Last night while driving to town, I hit a deer. She jumped into my path from behind bushes so close I couldn't stop. A piece of red flesh flew up and hit the windshield. I watched as she ran off. There was nothing I could do. Much later on my way home, I looked for her again. I could see where a deer had bedded down beside a tree, but there was no sign of a wounded animal, so I continued on. Last year, halfway up our mountain road, a falling star burned a red line like flesh across the sky, a meteorite, a pristine piece of galactic debris that came into existence billions of years before our solar system was made. The tail stretched out gold and slid. Tonight, on the same road, in a different year, I see only the zigzagging of foxes whose red tails are long floats that give their small bodies buoyancy. No friends meet me to view the stars. The nights have turned cold. The crickets' summer mating songs have hardened into drum beats, and dark rays of light pull out from under clouds as if steadying the flapping tent of the sky. Even when the air is still, I keep hearing a breeze the way it shinnies up the bones of things, up the bark of trees. A hard frost pales the hayfields. Tucked into the universe of a cottonwood tree, yellow leaves, shaped like gloved hands, reach across the green umbrella for autumn. It's said that after fruition, nothing will suffice. There is no more. But who can know the answer? I've decided to begin at the end, where the earth is black and barren. I want to see how death is mixed in, how the final plurals are taken back to single things, if they are, how and where life stirs out of ash. Already a frost is breaking down the green and leaves, then clotting like blood as tannin, carotene, xanthophyll, If pines represent continuance, then cottonwood leaves show me how the illusion of time punctuates space, how we fill those dusty, gaseous voids with escapades of life and death, dropping the tiny spans of human days into them. This morning I found a young heifer bred by a fence-jumping bull out of season trying to calve. I saw her high up on a sage-covered slope, lying down, flicking her tail, and thought she must have colic. But I was wrong. The calf's front feet and head had already pushed out who knows how many hours before, and it was dead. I walked her down the mountain to the shed, where a friend and I winched the dead calf out. We doctored her for infection, and I made a bed of straw, brought fresh creek water and hay. The heifer ate and rested. By evening she had revived. But by the next morning, she seemed to have pneumonia. 20 cc's of penicillin later, she worsened. The antibiotics didn't kick in. In the morning, I found she had not eaten or taken any water. Her breathing was worse. I lay on the straw beside her and slept. Before coming to the barn, I had smelled something acrid, the old familiar smell of death, though she was still alive. Yet the sound she made now had changed from grunting to a low moan, the kind of sound one makes when giving in to something. She was dead by nightfall. Today, yellow is combed all through the trees, and the heart-shaped cottonwood leaves spin downward to nothingness. I know how death is made, not why. But where in the body it begins, its lurking presence before the fact, its strangled music. I know how breathing begins to catch on each rib, how the look of the eye flattens, gives up its depth, no longer sees past itself. I know how easily existence is squandered, how noiselessly love is dropped to the ground. At the ranch graveyard, I wandered through the scattered bones of other animals who have died. Two carcasses are still intact, blues and lawyers, saddle horses who put in many good years. Manes, tails, hair gone, their skin is hardened to rawhide, dried to a tautness, peeling back just slightly from ribs, noses, and hooves, revealing a hollow interior, as if letting me see that the souls are really gone. After fruition, after death, After Black Ash, perhaps there is something more, even if it is only the droppings of a scavenger or bones pointing every which way as if to say, touch here, touch here, and the velocity of the abyss when a loved one goes his way, and the way wind stirs hard over fresh graves, and the emptying out of souls into rooms and the mischief they get into, flipping switches, opening windows, knocking candles out of silver holders, and after, shimmering on water like leaked gas, ready to explode. Mid-September. Afternoons, I paddle my blue canoe across our nine-acre lake, letting water take me where it will. The canoe was a gift, $8 at the thrift store. As I drift aimlessly, ducks move out from the reeds, all mallards, adaptable, omnivorous, and hardy. They nest here every year on the two tiny islands in the lake. After communal courtship and mating, the extra-male ducks are chased away, but this year one stayed behind. Perhaps he fathered a clutch on the sly or was too young to know where else to go. When the ducklings hatched and began swimming, he often tagged along, keeping them loosely together until the official father sent him away. Then he'd swim the whole circumference of the lake alone, too bewildered and dignified to show defeat. Tonight, the lake is a mirror. The moon swims across. Every now and then, I slide my paddle into its face. Last week, I saw the moon rise twice in one night. Once heavy and orange, a harvest moon heaving over the valley, and later in the mountains it rose small, tight, and bright. Now a half-moon slants down light, and shadows move desolation all over the place. At dawn, a flicker knocks. The hollow sound of his labor makes leaves drop in yellow skirts around the trees. Water bends daylight. Thoughts shift like whitecaps, caps, wild and bitter. My gut is a harp. Its strings get plucked in advance of any two-way communication by people I love, so that I know when attentions wane or bloom, when someone dear goes from me. From a battered book of Tang Dynasty poets, I read this by Meng Zhao. The danger of the road is not in the distance, Ten yards is enough to break a wheel. The peril of love is not in loving too often. A single evening can leave its wound in the soul. Tonight thin spines of boreal light pin down thought as if skewered on the ends of thrown quills. I'm trying to understand how an empty tube behind a flower swells to fruit. How leaves, twisting from trees, are pieces of last year's fire, spoiling to humus. Now, trees are orange globes, their brightness billowing into cumulus clouds. As the sun rises, the barometer drops. Wind swings around, blasting me from the east, and every tin roof shudders to a new tune. Stripped of leaves, stripped of love, I run my hands over my single wound and remember how one man was like a light going up inside me, not flesh. Wind comes like horn blasts. Leaves keep falling from trees as if circulating through fountains. I search for the possible in the impossible, nothing. Then I try for the opposite, but the yellow leaves in trees shaped like mouths just laugh. Tell me, how can I shut out the longing to comprehend? Wind slices off pond swells, laying them sharp and flat. Rain fires into the water all around me, denting the mirror. Where the warm spring feeds in, a narrow lane has been cut through aquatic flowers to the deep end. I slide my canoe around into the channel. Tendrils of duckweed wave green arms. Are they saying hello or goodbye? Beached on the shore of a tiny island, I watch the way a cloud tears, letting sun through. I get down on my hands and knees and touch my tongue to water. The lake divides. Its body is only chasm after chasm. Like water, I have no skin, only surface tension how exposed I feel. Where a duck tips down to feed, one small ripple causes random turbidity, ceaseless chaos, and the lake won't stop breaking. I can punch my finger through anything. Much later, in the night, in the dark, I shine a flashlight down. My single wound is a bright scar that gives off hooked light like a new moon. Thank you.
0: Our second reader is Richard Ford, who's lived all over this country, including, I believe, two blocks from here at one point in his life. He's the author of A Piece of My Heart, The Sports Writer, Rock Springs, most recently Wildlife, and he hails at the moment from Montana.
2: Well, thank you all for coming. Um, Somewhat it comes as a, a surprise to me Uh, to think that I write about the Great Plains or or that the Great Plains might be said um, or thought to have an effect on the stories that I write, even though I can see that some stories I have written purport to be set in Great Falls and that characters occasionally say things like, the Great Plains start here or we could see Chicago from here if the world weren't round. What I like to think of myself as doing is um, writing a story made of words, um, the most uh, important of which refer to or represent what people uh, say and do. That they love each other or quit loving each other or that they reconstitute their lives um, in new terms, matters of life and death, in other words, um, as could be lived, as we all know, any place at all. I don't believe these matters are typically Western or Great Plains-ish uh, or Montana-ish, or even Great Fallsish. And although um, the characters in my stories, I sometimes make say such things in trying to understand their lives, it's definitely not my belief. Um, I'm never trying to typify or capture or get the West or the Great Plains right in my stories. If readers think I do get it right, and many people don't, uh, I'm sorry and glad. <clears throat> <laughs> but I, I think that's a connection um, or an illusion that's really completed in the reader's mind with the selective aid of my story and her or his memory. I myself privately believe that a place um, has no character at all except ones which we make up for them individually. Uh, The West, to me, has no reliable character. It's neutral to me, and neither do the Great Plains. And I'm not trying to give it one or represent it. What I think I'm trying to do as regards place, the Great Plains, for instance, or Montana or Great Falls, which I've written about, is to put onto the page language, words which are interesting, in all the ways language can be interesting because of their sounds, or their cadences, or their syntax, or how they look on the page, even. And also, language that, um, with its referential value, provides a plausible setting for the human business I am chiefly interested in. Um, So with that said, I'll just read a little bit from wildlife. can't decide really if the relationship that I or anybody has to place exists first and we express it in the stories that we write or it doesn't exist at all and we make it up by writing the stories. It's not supposed to be anything deep. (laughs) In the fall of 1960 when I was 16 and my father was for a time not working, My mother met a man named Warren Miller and fell in love with him. This was in Great Falls, Montana, at the time of the Gypsy Basin oil boom. And my father had brought us there in the spring of that year from Lewiston, Idaho, in the belief that people, small people like him, were making money in Montana, or soon would be. And he wanted a piece of that good luck before all of it collapsed and was gone in the wind. My father was a golfer, a teaching pro. He had been to college, though not to the war, And since 1944, the year when I was born, and two years after he married my mother, he had worked at that, at golf, at the small country clubs and public courses in the towns near where he'd grown up, around Colfax, in the Palouse Hills of eastern Washington state. And during that time, the years when I was growing up, we had lived in Kirtland and McCall, Idaho, and in Endicott and Pasco and Walla Walla, where both he and my mother had gone to college and where they had met and gotten married. My father was a natural athlete. His own father had owned a clothing store in Colfax and made a good living, and he had learned to play golf on the kinds of courses he taught on. He could play every sport, basketball and ice hockey and throw horseshoes, and he had played baseball in college, but he loved the game of golf because it was a game other people found difficult, and that was easy for him. He was a smiling, handsome man with dark hair, not tall, but with delicate hands and a short, fluid swing that was wonderful to see, but never strong enough to move him into the higher competition of the game. He was good at teaching people to play golf, though. He knew how to discuss the game patiently in ways to make you think you had a talent for it, and people liked being around him. Sometimes he and my mother would play together, and I would go along with them and pull their cart, and I knew he knew how they looked. Good looking, young, happy. My father was soft-spoken and good-natured and optimistic, not slick in the way someone might think. And though it is not a usual life to be a golfer, to make your living at it the way anyone does who is a salesman or a doctor, my father was, in a sense, not a usual kind of man. He was innocent, and he was honest, and it is possible he was suited perfectly for the life he had made. In Great Falls... My father took a job two days a week at the airbase at the course there and worked the rest of the time at the club for members only across the river. The Wheatland Club, that was called. He worked extra because, he said, in good times people wanted to learn a game like golf and good times rarely lasted long enough. He was 39 then and I think he hoped he'd meet someone there, someone who'd give him a tip or let him in on a good deal in the oil boom or offer him a better job, a chance that would lead him and my mother and me to something better. We rented a house on 8th Street North in an older neighborhood of single-story brick and frame houses. Ours was yellow and had a low, paled fence across the front of it and a weeping birch tree in the side yard. Those streets are not far from the train tracks and are across the river from the refinery where a bright flame burned at all hours from the stack above the metal tank buildings. I could hear the shift whistles blow in the morning when I woke up. And late at night, the loud whooshing of machinery processing crude oil in the wildcat fields north of us. My mother did not have a job in Great Falls. She had worked as a bookkeeper for a dairy company in Lewiston, and in the other towns where we had lived, she had been a substitute teacher in math and science, the subject she enjoyed. She was a pretty small woman who had a good sense for a joke and who could make you laugh. She was two years younger than my father and had met him in college in 1941 and liked him and simply left with him when he'd taken a job in Spokane. I don't know what she thought my father's reasons were for leaving his job in Lewiston and coming to Great Falls. Maybe she'd noticed something about him, that it was an odd time in his life when his future had begun to seem different to him, as if he couldn't rely on it just to take care of itself as it had up until then. Or maybe there were other reasons, and because she loved him, she went along with him. But I do not think she ever wanted to come to Montana. She liked eastern Washington, liked the weather better there where she had been a girl. She thought it would be too cold and lonely in Great Falls, and people would not be easy to meet. Yet she must have believed at the time that this was a normal life she was living, moving, and working when she could, having a husband and a son, and that it was fine. Thank you.
0: Now we're going to hear Joy Harjo, originally of Oklahoma, now of Arizona. She's a poet. Among her books are She Had Some Horses, and In Mad Love and War. She's done screenwriting, filmmaking, and is an accomplished saxophonist with a band, but the band doesn't have a name just at the moment.
3: Thank you. I have a lot to say about the Great Plains, but I think it would take me more than fifteen minutes and um I actually have a lot to say about the land and how the land is alive, and the land is full of myths and stories that are constantly creating us, whether we are conscious of it or not i can't I wish I had the quote by a young klingit artist his name his first name was Jim it was something it wasn't Rupert it was something along those lines who was talking about the process of Americans becoming truly American. And the quote had something to do with, it would take some time. The process would take some time. But that's how the land works. And eventually, people would be Americans through the stories in the land. And so I find it in my work. I mean, Oklahoma has always been included with, I've seen Oklahoma included with the Southwest. I've seen Oklahoma included with the South with the Midwest, the Great Plains, and so on. In a way, it's part of all of that. And um, the stories, I mean, that place always finds its way in my work. I'm of the Creek tribe, or Muscogee, from Oklahoma. And we were originally from Alabama. And there are these mounds there that find themselves into this piece here called Deer Dancer. I'm going to read a couple of pieces. And uh, this, play, this could have happened any anywhere in the Great Plains. Um, I had some Blackfeet guys come up to me once in Montana and said that it, they knew that it happened. They saw the story happen there. It's called Deer Dancer. Nearly everyone had left that bar in the middle of winter, except the hardcore. It was the coldest night of the year. Every place shut down, but not us. Of course we noticed when she came in. We were Indian ruins, she was the end of beauty. No one knew her, the stranger whose tribe we recognized, her family related to deer if that's who she was, a people accustomed to hearing songs in pine trees and making them hearts. The woman inside the woman who was to dance naked in the bar of misfits blue deer magic. Henry Jack, who could not survive a sober day, thought she was buffalo calf woman come back, passed out, his head by the toilet. All night he dreamed a dream he couldn't say. The next day he borrowed money, went home, and sent back the money I lent. Now that's a miracle. (laughs) Some people see vision in a burned tortilla, some in the face of a woman. This is the bar of broken survivors, the club of shotgun, knife wound, of poison by culture. We who were taught not to stare drank our beer. The players gossiped down their cues. Someone put a quarter in the jukebox to relive despair. Richard's wife dove to kill her. We had to hold her back, empty her pockets of knives and diaper pins, buy her two beers to keep her still while Richard secretly bought the beauty a drink. How do I say it? In this language, there are no words for how the real world collapses. I could say it in my own and the sacred mounds would come into focus but I couldn't take it in this dingy envelope. So I look at the stars and this strange city, frozen to the back of the sky. The only promise
0: has the unenviable task of following Fred. <laughs> Is James Welch, the fine novelist from Montana, author of Winter in the Blood, The Death of Jim Loney, and Fool's Crow.
4: <clears throat> <coughs> well, uh, excuse me, it's really good to be here in such interesting and distingu- distinguished company. Um, I was uh, born in Montana on the uh, Blackfeet Reservation up around Browning. And that's uh, where most, most of my work is set up in that part of the country, including this novel that I'm going to read from tonight. Um, right now, I live in the mountains. I've lived there for 23 years, maybe, something like that. Um, but uh, I always come back to the uh, plains or the prairies. I don't know what they're actually called. Um, when I want to write about Montana because that's much more inspiring out there than when you live in the mountains because when you live in the mountains you don't quite see things that you uh, you should but when you're out there you see everything so uh, my, this novel is just coming out it'll be out in about a week or so I think it's called The Indian Lawyer and it's about uh, an Indian lawyer his name is Sylvester Yellowcalf and um is, uh, he was raised by his grandparents in Browning, uh, he was a good student, uh, great basketball player. The, his Browning team won two basketball champion, uh, state championships in a row. I went to the University of Montana, he was an all-conference basketball player there. Uh, I went to Stanford Law School. Uh, and then he uh, became a member of a Helena law firm, Helena is the state capital of uh, Montana. And during the course of the book, he uh, is first talked into running for Congress, but then he eventually becomes excited by the prospect of representing uh, not only Montanans, but Indian people. Um, he's also on a parole board, uh, which I was for 10 years. And one of the things I always thought about as uh, a member of the parole board was the possibility for blackmail. And and every now and then, you would read an article in the, uh, the country about some parole board member or whatever getting caught in a compromised position. Uh, So that's exactly what happens to Sylvester Yellowcalf. Uh, Unbeknownst to him, he gets caught in a compromised position. Um, And I'm just going to jump right in and start reading here. Uh, I talk about his... uh, 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 The woman that he uh, becomes involved with is the wife of an inmate. Her name is Patty Ann Uh, Rogers, his girlfriend, his real girlfriend, uh, is named Shelley, and uh, uh, Mary Bird is his grandmother who raised him uh, since childhood. Uh, His his parents uh, left him. He put the speedometer at 80, clicked on the cruise control, and sat back. The air was warmer here, the sun brighter. He cracked his window and felt the wind rush through his hair. He had always loved the quiet fastness of the plains. To him, the country was not empty, but remote and secluded, even intimate if you were alone. Much of the time, if you were off the roads and highways, you could not see any sign of man's making, and you were alone or with friends. Even with friends, if no one spoke, you were alone with your thoughts and your eyes, and you saw plenty in spite of what newcomers and tourists said. They didn't see the colors the shades and shapes of the prairies the various grasses and brushes the occasional animal that made it all worth it a place where you saw a badger or a golden eagle would be there always in your mind even if you were a thousand miles away preparing for your law exams or putting together a workman's comp case many times when he was far away Sylvester had envisioned these plains, the rolling hills, the ravines, the cut banks and alkali lakes, the reservoirs and scrublands, and he always saw life. He saw a hawk circling over a prairie dog town. He saw antelope gliding through, over and under fences at a dead run. He saw a rattlesnake sleeping on a warm rock, or coiled, tongue flicking, tail rattling, as it slowly undulated back away. He saw beauty in these creatures and he had quit trying to explain why. It was enough to hold these planes in his memory and it was enough to come back to them. He stopped for gas at a convenience store in Great Falls and ate a soggy microwave sandwich. It was just afternoon and he hadn't really slept in 36 hours, but he was not sleepy. He had dozed for a time last night because he remembered waking up and she was still draped over his body. But it was still very early in the morning when he gently eased from beneath her and covered her. He had to walk back to the parking lot behind the power block to get his car. Fortunately, the gate was up when he drove home and watched sports on an all-night sports station. He hadn't tried to think then because he wasn't ready to. In the morning, he showered, put on faded jeans, a Western shirt, and boots. He packed an overnighter, then ate some toast. It was then that he decided to call Shelley. He didn't know what he would say to her, but he wanted to hear her voice. She had been distant since their trip to Chico Hot Springs. In fact, they had seen each other only three times in the past two weeks. She said she was busy working the bugs out of the new fiscal program, but Sylvester knew she was working out their relationship in her own mind. Relationships. That was the other thing they talked about in Palo Alto. Besides politics, law and sports. It had become the buzzword for impending trouble, a rationalizing word to palliate a drifting away, usually by one spouse or lover. Sylvester had never heard the word used that way before, but then he'd had a relationship with Anita Talcott or Sandoval, and it had turned bad, or had at least evaporated away. And now Shelley seemed to be in the process of disting herself distancing herself from him. Sylvester couldn't believe what had happened last night, but he knew that he had wanted it. Why else would he have met her in a bar? He had slept with a client. He had heard so many stories, and he'd always been disgusted by them. His colleagues laughed and told the stories with great enthusiasm. Now Sylvester had joined the ranks of those they laughed at. And it skips a little ways here. Why would she make up a story just to see him? Not just to see him, but to sleep with him. With an alarming clarity, he realized that she had seduced him. She had extended the evening to include dinner, then more drinks, and finally her bedroom. Why? Because she knew from the day she walked into his office he was ready for adventure? No, it had begun before that. It had begun before they met each other. The lie was just an entree into his life. Who was she, and what had she to do with him?" And then it skips to his uh, grandmother sitting on her front step up in Browning. Mary Bird sat on her front step and watched the children walking home from school. A few of them lived nearby, but most of them lived in the government housing west of Moccasin Flat. Virtually every day for 29 years, she had watched them, ever since Sylvester had entered the first grade. For the first month, she had taken him back and forth to school. After that, he had walked home with the other grade schoolers. Most of the time, she would hear the laughter and yells, the loud, boisterous talk before she saw them. Later, when Sylvester entered the seventh grade, she and Earl had given him a basketball for his birthday. After that, she heard the thump, thump, thump of the basketball punctuating the loud talk. Then came the girls. Before, the girls and boys had pretty much walked in separate groups. By the ninth grade, they were walking together in one large group. That was the way it should be, all of the kids together. But after the ninth grade, Sylvester stayed after school to practice basketball and run track and he came home alone, most of the time after dark. He would trot then. She knew that because the basketball would bounce faster, and she could hear his sneakers on the frozen ground of the yard. It was just about that time that Earl Yellowcalf bought his first TV set. He would sit in a living room watching his TV, eating supper on a TV tray, while Marion Sylvester ate and talked at the kitchen table. Sylvester would report on a day's activities, and Mary would listen. She could tell a lot about families by Sylvester's report, the way the kids acted in school, what someone said about his father or grandparents, if a girl had been missing from school for several days. Later, she would clean up and wash dishes and interpret those reports. Sylvester would talk a while with his grandfather, usually about basketball, then go to his room to study. Things were different now. Mary Bird still got her gossip when she went shopping or visiting or to a ceremonial. But she missed those daily reports and her imagining at the kitchen sink. And of course, she missed Sylvester. He had been gone for 17 years, and she missed him every day, even now, as though he had just walked out the door to the coach's car that took him off to college. She had packed a bag of sandwiches and some pemmican to eat along the way, and two apples. She could still see those two apples sitting on the counter before she put them in the bag. They were perfectly red and firm, like the ones you could get down in Great Falls if you paid a little extra. She couldn't remember where she got those apples. That was the trouble with old age but she did remember the small medicine pouch that she had given him the night before. It had belonged to her grandfather and had protected him back in the days when a warrior needed protection when he went off to battle. A week later, she was cleaning Sylvester's room for something to do, and she found the medicine pouch tucked behind some books in his bookcase. She never mentioned her discovery to him, But she put the pouch back in the trunk with her other old things. The last of the children, in their bright jackets and basketball shoes, had walked by. But still Mary sat, feeling the sun in her bones. Although she was 87 years old and a little heavy, she felt she was in pretty good shape. She got around still. Her mind, except for her memory, was sharp. She didn't leave burners on or forget where she was or what she was going to do. A good thing, too. Earl had had three small strokes in the past five years, the last one leaving him partially paralyzed on the left side. He spoke with great difficulty, but he could speak. And the older he got, the more he wanted to talk. Quite often he would speak right through a TV program, even though he had it on full blast because he was hard of hearing. He spoke spoke of many and various things. It was as though his mind was racing over old, familiar courses. And every now and then, an obstacle would stop him, and he would have to talk his way around it. Mary didn't mind. It beat paying attention to the TV. Except for one time when he'd asked her, right out of the blue, if she loved Sylvester more than him. She had been stitching a star quilt for a friend's daughter's marriage. The question stopped her. She had lived continuously for 65 years with Earl, and they hadn't talked about love for the past 40. Earl had been treasurer of the tribe for 25 years. After that, he had worked in the accounting department for the BIA at the agency for another 15. He had gone to Carlisle Indian School just after Jim Thorpe and had gotten better grades than he had. It was such a childish question that it made Mary sad to think that somewhere, a long time back, they had quit telling each other about love and each other. Of course I love you, she had said, hoping that would end it, and it did. Earl went back to his TV, and Mary smiled to herself. To think that he still thought about love made her happy. She hoped she didn't die first. She couldn't stand the thought of him being put in an old folks' home. She watched a dark green car pull up on the edge of the yard right in front of her. The driver sat there for a moment, then opened the door and got out. She couldn't see very well anymore, and she only saw the upper half of the man, but she knew it was Sylvester. She laughed and clapped her hands. It was always so good to see him. Thank you.
0: gee, I hope Larry Woiwodi still lives on the Great Plains and likes living on the Great Plains. Otherwise, I'm the only writer here that does and that it means anything, too. <laughs> Actually, I sometimes think of Larry Woiwodi, whom I only met for the first time tonight. He's the author, of course, of what I'm going to do, I think, Beyond the Bedroom Wall, Barn Brothers, and other books. The reason I think of him is when I said it, my desk, my, my table, at the very foot of the Great Plains. It seems to me that he and I are kind of um, the bookends of this a uh, great, great open space. I am the southernmost writer on the Great Plains, and he's the northernmost, Larry Wywoody.
5: Thank you, Larry, fellow bookend. I'm sure that diminutive also makes you feel uh, that we're somehow related. Yes, I am, from the Great Plains. (laughs) I'm grateful to God for the Great Plains, because I was born there. If they didn't exist, well, I'll leave that to your imagination. Actually, there's, there's been some talk recently about changing the whole atmosphere and aspect of the plains up around North Dakota. I'm not sure if you've read about this. A university professor from Rutgers would like to transfer all that land back to the Buffalo, turn it into the Buffalo Commons, as he calls it. He hasn't yet uh, proposed with this theory what he'll do with the people who live there and who raised, by the way, 50% of the hard wheat for your bread in America. However, this is a proposal that some people are seriously considering at the moment. Actually, we, we have a counter-proposal. It was made by a uh, uh, young Suboy boy in Bismarck. Uh, Bismarck, that's how we call it there. Uh, it's not named after the jelly donut. You know, the, it's named after the guy, the same guy the jelly donut's named after. Uh, <laughs> Uh, some railroad entrepreneurs thought that if they named this uh, Bismarck, these people who lived in Germany would suddenly emigrate there. <laughs> well, what happened is a lot of people did emigrate there. Uh, well, anyway, 4,000. Uh, that's all that are there right now. Uh, these these people emigrated there, but they're mostly Scandinavian, Norwegian, and uh, Swedish, because they were still looking for this guy
1: in
6: <laughs> this Bismarck. <laughs>
5: Anyway, this this little Sioux boy in uh, Bismarck, he goes to Bismarck Indian School. Uh, I recently wrote a book called Indian Affairs. It's not autobiographical. It's not about the Indian boy and me. I want to say that right now. Uh, This little boy suggested that uh, his counterproposal is that the entire state of New Jersey be turned into a buffalo bull (laughs) commons, or as he put it, buffalo chip area. that they put a big chain link fence uh, you know, around the the entire state, and uh, and then right in the right in, sort of in the center, uh, another fence around Rutgers, uh, <laughs> a, as high as it is deep. You know, uh, a lot of a lot of New Yorkers figure that's what's over there anyway. Uh, as high as it is deep, and then let the uh, Rutgers professors work at canning buffalo bull, or uh, one another. After all, it's only university professors. I'm going to be attempting to give some different views of the plains from different angles, just looking at the topography of it as it were from different angles. I'm going to begin first uh, at at, uh, ground level. This is from my uh, first or second book. I can't remember anymore. And it it goes like this every every night when I'm not able to sleep, when scrolls of words and formulas unfurl in my mind, and faces of those I love, both living and dead, rise from the dark, accusing me of apathy, ambition, self-indulgence, neglect, all of their accusations just, and there's no hope of rest. I try again to retrace the street. It's an unpaved street, and it's the color of my hand. It's made up mostly of the clayey gumbo from the flat and tilting farmlands all around this village, so small it can be seen through from all sides. And its ungraded surface is generally overrun with ruts, which are slippery and water filled in spring, iron like in summer, furred in the fall with frost as phosphorescent as the mountainy ridges on the moon's crust. And in winter, buried beyond all thought, except for any thought that clay or gravel or the booted feet of people traveling traveling over ice-covered snow above might have. It's the main street of Hyatt, North Dakota, and it's one block long. I'm grateful also this evening to Ian Fraser, who has written a book called The Great Plains so that New Yorkers know that it exists so that we can have a reading of writers from the Great Plains <laughs> on that same street the, this novel opens with a man walking this street he gets to the end and he turns around I've noticed recently a lot of books have people walking streets main, the main streets recently well anyway Updike had one He's a lot of people. (laughs) The person gets to the end of the street and turns around. I feel a pressure behind and turn, and there are the cottonwoods and willows at the far end of the street, along the edge of the lake, flying the maidenhair faces of their leaves into the wind, and beyond their crowns of trembling insubstantiality, across the lake, dotted with cottonwood pollen... The blue and azure plane abuts against the horizon at infinity. Just to give you a feeling of the overarching uh, sky out there, when we have visitors, they're unsettled, and for about two hours or two days sometimes, they keep (laughs) looking around like that, feeling they're surrounded. This uh, second reading, this is a poem. I have written a few poems also. Uh moves up a little higher to uh, one of our mountains, which is 110 feet high in this area of the state. Uh, this is the end of that novel. I was telling you, it's a very quick reading of the book, and uh, actually a savior reading it. It's, it's about 600 pages long. And uh, I know none of the critics read it, so why, why should you? You can pick it up in paperback now for 79.95 at the local bookstore. Uh, it's terrible how paperback's gone up, isn't it? Uh, actually, it's nine ninety-five, and send me the 70 okay? <laughs> High here on hawk's nest, no hawks fly tonight. Songbirds going south or west or east, over sons and daughters have gone for good. Regain this sky, winging up over cottonwood crowns and this hill's weedy crest to flutter in mid-flight. In front of our eyes. Barley fields and summer fallow far away below a hawk's nest, and wheat fields following section lines as straight as rules. Land you farmed for 40 years or more, or for your life, or for yours and your sons, or for mine. Squares of fire in the wind as our only sun goes down, dying in its fiery light. Hawks have seen the change in it far away below. Hawk's Nest. For all the talks high on Hawk's Nest since cavalry bivouacs and arrows arcs of hopes for home and our nativeness branding us on our feet and more all that remains here is Hawk's Nest, this ship of rest its mast tips red and Indian lore no longer lore nor believed in. Lorna, less and this long hour of last light, Lord and goodbye and then from further toward the center of that book to do a little reprieve of it now that you know what Hawks Nest is uh, one of the brothers in the book there are three brothers, Jerome, Charles and Timothy, one of the brothers dreams after his grandfather's Death, this dream. That night he dreamed about a hawk, a hawk high above the crossroads of Hyatt, and saw from its height how it was to watch a dozen shadowed figures of children scatter from the playground of the parochial school and go running down the darkening streets in different directions toward the smells of supper rising in as many individual ways as there were lit and ordered homes anchored along the blocks below. While ahead of him, over the fading squares of fields and summerfellow, lay the dark mass of Hawk's Nest, his unoccupied and rooted throne. Home again with the settling of wings in the cottonwood in the night air. Home again. Home. And then finally, in an attempt to, let me say kind of attempt, to pull together some of this topography, I'm going to read a, a story from my last book called The New Miller Stories. That's the family that I write about quite frequently. It's about uh, the story's entitled She and it's about uh, a native Guatemalan who comes to work for Charles New Miller and his wife in Chicago. And She's married an American and he's brought her to the States and the American doesn't like the States anymore after living in Guatemala and after this native Guatemalan, Estralaria as her name, has lived with the couple for a year, or worked for them. Uh, she's become very possessive of the couple's family, of their daughter and then of their son. And at the, I'm reading toward the end of the story. At the end of the story, the young man of the couple, Charles Newmiller, as has taken Estrelaria to the L station and figures this is their goodbye. She won't be there the next week as she's scheduled to be because uh, she she would she would want to leave without formally saying goodbye. So that that's this comes toward the end of the story. In fact, this is the end of the story. Two or three pages here, uh, Estrelaria. He doesn't think he'll be there, as I said, and uh, he wakes then on on the day when she should be there. I slept in late and woke thinking of her, of her retreating back at the L station, and of the texture she'd brought to our new home, like a lunar light I could taste, and then of the texture of her hands, gingery brown with polished rose palms. I dressed and started up the stairs with my head so low I could see the treads behind my heels, daunted by the work ahead, and stepped onto the landing. Estrelaria was there, on her knees, her backside to me, her bare feet crossed at the ankles, scrubbing the landing floor. Her toes, so close, looked prehensile, gripping, curved at their ends from her walk and the angle of her legs in her rolled up blue jeans, this pose reminded me so powerfully of something I felt my mind about to give with a seizure that would catapult me back down the stairs. She turned to me and smiled, exposing glittering teeth, and as if to keep my equilibrium, I thought, her family must be terribly primitive. She's never had sugar. Then she sat back in her legs and reached over her shoulder to her single braid as thick as my wrist, and drew it with her hand over one breast, and a lighted space appeared above us as if the ceiling were gone and the roof swept away. Clouds were pouring across the open rafters in a bright blue sky. I could feel the heat of an equatorial sun. If I looked away from her smile, which was a mere lifting of her lips, I would see foliage opening out from the landing, I was sure. The green at our edges was, was the grass of a mesa we were settled upon, she half reclining, I standing, with the land spreading off in gray and green undulations to a roll of buttes in the distance, and above and all around us was the openness of a southwestern or western sky. This woman at my feet had worked for us as perhaps no other woman ever would, and her expression as she stared up at me conveyed more than the dignity of her womanhood. She was aware that there was little to fear in me. I was a dreamer, and she'd released me into my dreams as only my mother could. Matters with my wife were too sexually complicated for her to be my mother, and though there had been times when I'd felt that this would be convenient, what an absurd thought I saw now, a boy's thought. I knew I never could have accepted my wife above me or under me in that role. My mother had appeared instead in Estrelaria. How many times had I seen my mother's legs drawn together in this way as she sat back to rest from scrubbing a floor, rubbing an arched wrist over her forehead, shaking back her hair. And now it occurred to me that she was Estrelaria size, no taller, and a sudden physical incursion of height through my limbs readjusted me. It wasn't a tropical landscape I'd glimpsed, but the country of my childhood. These were the fields and the hills and the
3: trees. ...knife wound of poison by culture. We who were taught not to stare drank our beer. The players gossiped down their cues. Someone put a quarter in the jukebox to relive despair. Richard's wife dove to kill her. We had to hold her back, empty her pockets of knives and diaper pins, buy her two beers to keep her still while Richard secretly bought the beauty a drink. How do I say it? In this language, there are no words for how the real world collapses. I could say it in my own and the sacred mounds would come into focus but I couldn't take it in this dingy envelope. So I look at the stars in this strange city, frozen to the back of the sky, the only promises that ever make sense. My brother-in-law hung out with white people, went to law school with a perfect record, quit, says you can keep your laws, your words, and practice law on the street with his hands. He jimmied to the proverbial dream girl the face of the moon while the players racked a new game, bragged he told her magic words, and that's when she broke, became human. But we all heard his bar voice crack. What's a girl like you doing in a place like this? That's what I'd like to know. What are we all doing in a place like this? You would know she could hear only what she wanted to, don't we all? Left the drink of betrayal, Richard bought her at the bar. What was she on? We all wanted some. Put a quarter in the juke. We all take risks stepping into thin air. Our ceremonies didn't predict this, or we expected more. I had to tell you this, for the baby inside the girl sealed up with a lick of hope and swimming into praise of nations. This is not a rooming house, but a dream of winter falls, and the deer who portrayed the relatives of strangers. The way back is dear breath on icy windows. The next dance, none of us predicted. She borrowed a chair for the stairway to heaven and stood on a table of names and danced in the room of children without shoes. He picked a fine time to leave me, Lucille, with four hungry children and crop in the field. And then she took off her clothes. She shook loose memory, waltzed with the empty lover we'd all become. She was the myth slipped down through dream time, the promise of feast we all knew was coming, the deer who crossed through knots of a curse to find us she was no slouch and neither were we watching the music ended and so does the story I wasn't there but I imagined her like this not a stained red dress with tape on her heels but the deer who entered our dream in white dawn breathed mist into pine trees her fawn a blessing of meat the ancestors who never left and then I'm going to read this one. It's called Northern Lights. And it takes place between uh, Ashland, Wisconsin, the plains of Kansas, and so on. And it actually came, the Northern Lights, of course, are the Northern Lights up that you see farther north. And um, it was actually, I, I was told this amazing story by this Vietnam vet who came up to me at the powwow. I had been talking to his daughter earlier who at uh, 18 was sober for the first time since she, you know her childhood. And uh, she was writing poetry. And she said her father wrote fiction and she wanted me to meet him. And uh, he told me this amazing story. And I didn't want to lose it. So I started writing. I, I imagined what happened before the point of the story he told me. And uh, when I got to the story he told me, I stopped because I realized it was his. But I'll, I'll conclude with this called Northern Lights. Northern Lights were sighted above Lake Superior as we danced concentric circles around the drums at Ashland, each step bringing us through the freezing. Bells, the occasional sacred flute like wind beneath an eagle, and the drum marking more than time, rather outlining ancestors, a pipeline into the earth to the mother of volcanoes. I noticed Whirling Soldier beneath the garish lights of the auditorium. He trusted nothing, still broke swords with angry gods. His war scars were evident in the way his eyes flinched and burned with gunpowder from the recurring horror of his decapitated ditchmate draped on the trees spilled across him. We talked wild rice, modern fiction, and of his daughter who is hitting 18 sober after drinking away adolescence, and were proud to watch her dance by us, her eyes on fire with the intimate knowledge of survival from the abyss. She carried her niece, his granddaughter, who was laughing to see so many grandmothers, so many relatives. He had returned from the war from Wichita with a spirit feather pressed against his heart. The killing wind chafed his lips. There were no prayers anymore. All he knew he was leaving Nam and approaching the destruction of his people by laws. The northern lights were reminiscent of mercy gathering on the horizon. Sometimes he thought he saw them in Nam, or was it fire from the unseen enemy which could have come from the boy from Ohio in the foxhole next to him, or the gook rattling the bush who appeared as his cousin Ralph, an apparition making an offering of the newest crop of wild rice. He was killing himself, he thought. Each shot rigged his spine to hell. There was no way to get out. He was in it and knew the warrior code had said nothing about the wailing of children in the dark. The sacrifice reminded him of his mother stuffing wood into the stove, cooking potatoes in the gray before dawn, before he went to, she went to clean houses. They never had enough to eat. He always went to find his father instead of going to school with his sisters, his stomach warm with potatoes and coffee, sometimes fresh deer meat when they were lucky. Suddenly he was in Vietnam, a man as his father had been when he had found him floating on ice in the lake. His father had been fishing for redemption when his heart gave out. The empty bottles scattered away, slipped into the river, an epitaph read by fish drinking in the lake. Under fire, the image of his father took hold. the image of his father on ice often took hold through the scope, and his teeth would chatter in the hot, damp jungle as if he were freezing. but he couldn't put his rifle down, and nothing killed the image kept it from growing on his its own. Its own. Soon it was spring, and the lake thawed, and his father sunk to the bottom. Deer stopped to drink. Clouds surfaced in the blue. He made it through summer, was shot clean through, missed the shin bone while flying on heroin, making volcanoes of the bush. By then, he couldn't see through to the surface of the lake. He was lucky to be able to walk, climb up the muddy bank, make it to Wichita after the blur of San Francisco, Oklahoma City on his way home. In Yuma, in the hangover of a dream of his mother beating a blanket in his honor, he tore the medals from his pack and pawned them for a court. He snuffed his confusion between honor and honor with wine, became an acrobat of pain in the Indian bars of Kansas. One of those mornings, no different than any other except for the first taste of winter, reminded him of the beginning of the world and he imagined his mother wrapping a deer meat sandwich in a plastic bread wrapper. When he opened the door, his breath took the form of question marks, imitated clouds over water. His father sat up on the sagging bed, coughed, asked him where he was going. But he didn't hear the question until years later as he staggered up some road, some state road north of Wichita, with a pine of seagrams tucked in his pants, the staccato of machine guns still stuttering in his memory. What must have been the head crow laugh from a stiff telephone wire swung back and forth beneath the sun, blinking his eyes at the sleeping pitiful world? Whirling soldier muttered, his voice broke off in waves, he wished he had a cigarette. The eye of a dried sunflower reminded him his baby would be too, but she too had probably disappeared in the azimuth of forgetfulness. He unscrewed the cap of his final fix. His last fight did not involve the clockwork of artillery, but a punch that shattered the mouth of a man who looked like his brother. He staggered away from the man who whimpered like a child into the shiny black blood pool and threw up in the weeds breaking the sidewalk. Suddenly, the high winds of violence that chased him from fight to fight found him north of Wichita at dawn, talking to a spirit who had never been a stranger, but a relative he had never met. I can't tell you what took place beneath the blessing sun, for the story doesn't belong to me, but to whirling soldier who gifted me with it in the circle of hope. After the dance, we all ran out onto the ice to see the northern lights. They were shimmering relatives returned from the war, dancing in the skies all around us. It was an unusual moment of grace for fools. Thank you.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, I'm especially delighted to introduce you now to Frederick Manfred, certainly one of the most amazing literary energies to come out of the American West. Frederick Manfred's first novel was published 46 years ago, if I'm doing my arithmetic correctly. And uh, there's no sign that he's slowing down. Some 30 books uh, have followed in the 46 years since The Golden Bowl. Uh, The two that have meant the most to me personally, uh, a book called Lord Grizzly, I think the finest novel to deal with the American fur trade, after all the West's first industry, and a book called Riders of Judgment, which is the story, a novel about the Johnson County War, uh, the war that uh, Michael Cimino treated in Heaven's Gate. Frederick Manfred comes from Siouxland, which is the place he invented and peopled. Fred.
6: I invented the name Siouxland because I had some problems when I was writing a book called This Is The Year. Um, Siouxland covers the southwest corner of Minnesota, the northwest corner of Iowa, the whole eastern third of South Dakota, and a piece of uh, northeast Nebraska, and I got tired of typing each time if somebody went to <laughs> Sioux Falls, <laughs> Sioux Falls, South Dakota, or Sioux City, Iowa, all that typing was for nothing, and I um, So then another thing I thought, suppose people in California, New York read this book and they say, my God, these people drove 100 miles just to get groceries. And so um, I invented the term. And the way I did it was to look at a map and see um, what what thing would pull it together. And of course, there was the Big Sioux River. The Big Sioux River flows into the Missouri River between uh, South Dakota and Iowa. Once I had that put together, I drew a map of it, and that was published in the end pages of the book. This is the year, in April of 1947. Within two months, all the advertising guys in Sioux City and Sioux Falls grabbed all of it, because they no longer had to say, um, and radio went away, serving all these different states. They could just say serving Siouxland or serving s- Greater Siouxland. I've often wished I'd copyrighted that. <laughs> I would have made a lot of money, because everybody uses it now. Except Sioux Falls. They uh, were jealous of Sioux City because Sioux City was the first to use it. And so <laughs> Sioux Falls called it um, the Sioux Empire.
3: <laughs> uh,
6: the Indian didn't believe in empires. So it was later on, I realized that Faulkner had his spot. Um, which was Oknipotofa, his county, and Hardy later on um, reinvented Wessex. There was an area called Wessex at one time, uh, but it it had had languished and then he picked it up again. And then of course Cervantes had his um, Don Quixote in La Mancha. About being from the Great Plains, um, you have to be somewhere to be a writer, you know, live somewhere. And without You can't help very much, but what something of that, where you live, will get into what you're doing. If you think you have to locate your novels in various places on earth to give your writers a universal uh, appeal, you fall flat on your face. What counts is how well you tell of the human comedy and the human tragedy. Um, To be one of those kind of writers who has things placed in different spots on Earth, it's a little like wanting t- um, to be a cosmopolitan person by being well-traveled. That is BS. Um, what you are in danger of becoming a, such a person is a water bug skating brilliantly over the surface of things, but never very deep. And to change the figure of speech, the short wick in your lamp does not reach down into deep oils of your being. Now, how do I go about writing? With one exception, I've thought about an idea for a novel at least 10 years before I began it. I read about Hugh Glass in 1943 and wrote it in 53. It was published in 54. The next novel of mine that the uh, University of Oklahoma Press will publish is Of Lizards and Angels. They've accepted it. I took my first note on that in 1943, a year before my first novel was published. When I, started five years, when I started the book five years ago, I had some 200 pages of notes and a huge fat folder of clippings from newspapers and magazines and so on related to the subject. Maybe, uh, and I didn't begin it, by the way, until I found a skeleton in all those notes and it was the skeleton that wrote the books. I was just the clerk writing it down. Maybe I can explain it to by telling you a little bit of the Burgess Shale. I don't know how many of you may have heard of that, but a man named um, uh, Stephen J. Gould wrote a book called Wonderful Life. It seems when life first burst on Earth, uh, there were just literally thousands and thousands of different life forms, no bigger than, say, a band-aid that you might put over a pimple and they had it had no bones it was just a flat envelope with an opening in the and an end, and a, on the other end and um, all died there were no descendants all the species he's managed but one survived that one had a ridge of cartilage and that cartilage became a, a, a backbone and there's where we come from And it tells you how rare it really is that we are here with our sentient beings and can make comments like we are making tonight. And makes you wonder a little bit if it is true that evolution uh, is a sort of like a pyramid with man showing up at the point here. Suppose that that creature hadn't shown up without the backbone, um, there'd just be worms. (laughs) And sometimes I think that's what we got anyway. after 10 years, a plot uh, shows up in my things. Um, I have one problem with that, and that is that it seems that 30 different guys wrote my books because uh, the, the skeleton actually writes the book, see, not me. I'm just the guy that sits down and puts down what I hear in my head. The novel I just finished writing, the first draft of two weeks ago, um, it's another one I've written now. Um, was um, something that I took the first note down in 1945, 1945. Uh, some 40 years ago, um, I happened to be involved in an incident, and um, that was the problem or the germ that started everything. And f- from that point on, I also had another uh, 220 pages of notes, and um. Uh, And again, an outline wrote that thing. Now, I want to read you um, the incident that started all off. We're dealing with a man named Christian Nash, or Christian, as I call him. He's married. Uh, He hasn't seen his best friend, Julian Holmes, for a very long time. Uh, The wars, uh, he's been in the Navy uh, intelligence. And um, he asks if he can come and see Christian Nash and visit him again. Christian agrees he shows up. He's there for two or three days. They had a wonderful time. The agreement is that um, Christian is to keep working on his anthropological work, and the mornings and in the afternoon they talk and take uh, walks in the evening. A Christian is writing some articles on anthropology. Christian had trouble, as always, with the opening paragraph. He wrote it several times. He was on his fourth draft when he suddenly became aware that someone was standing outside the screen door to his workshop. Turning in his swivel chair, he looked up. Julian, you're up early. Come in, please. "Uh, I hate to interrupt your thoughts, Christian, but no, I can't come in. Julian's face was flushed. Gone was his usual smiling hauteur. I'm sorry, but what's up, man? I've got to go. You mean, leave us? Christian got up and stepped out through the screen door. You can't do that. Um, The week you were going to spend with us is only half over. Got to go. Julian hurried away, turning past the corner of the workshop, out towards his blue fort. Well, if you must go right now, what about your bags? They're already packed, in the car. Julian spewed the words back over his shoulder as he climbed into his car. He shut the door with an emphatic slam. Hey, Julian, what's going on here? Then, out of the corner of his eye, peripherally, Christian saw something. It was a face in the, in the narrow panel window beside the front door of his house. He knew instantly it was his wife Mary's face. By the way, Mary is spelled M-E-R-R-Y. He quick decided not to look directly at her, but instead to concentrate on the left edge of the peripheral picture he had of her. My God, Mary was crying. What had Mary come to like this Julian so much in four short days that she should be weeping as as though a long-loved relative was leaving for the last time? Julian stepped on the starter. The Ford responded with a low roar then leveled off into a smooth murmur. Julian, hey, roll down the window for God's sake. You can't leave just now like this. Julian wouldn't look at him, but he did roll up down the window. He fussed with the steering wheel. I've got to go, sorry, but that's the way it is. Jesus Christ, Julian, I don't understand. Julian goosed the motor. Did you suddenly get a call to report to the CIA that quick? Christian placed both his hands on the car door. Julian didn't answer. Christian could feel Mary's eyes on him. On Julian. You can't just leave run off. Man, we just got we just got acquainted with each other again. I know, but that's the way it is. Julian slipped the car in gear and with a lurch was off. Christian had been leaning so hard on the car door that when the car vanished from under his hands, he almost fell forward before he could catch his balance. Holy smokes. Now what in God's name? Christian turned slowly on his toes to look directly at the face in the window. By that time, the face was gone. What in the world's happened here? He found himself up on his toes as though like a startled bird he had been about to take off. I don't understand it. Slowly let himself down on his heels, he shook his head, and then surprisingly, even to himself, he didn't hurry to the house to confront Mary. Now I'd like to talk a bit about uh, the white goddess that Robert Graves wrote about in his book, The White Goddess. I am a farm boy and I'm a little suspicious of some of those things that the Greeks furnished us, all those muses and graces and so on. So I never really was too taken in by the fact that there maybe was a muse for me too. Um, I met him in Chicago. Uh, We were at a luncheon together. We both spoke at it. Um, and there was a little in the conversation, I asked him uh, besides the white goddess, did you ever think you're writing a book called The Dark Goddess? Yes! He says, I have, and I know her name too. (laughs) And I said, what was that? Anna, Anna. I said, what sound is that? Well, he says that's when the first woman, mother, who spoke the first sound really, was letting her child know that she had milk for him. Anna, Anna, and then the child responded, and then there's where the, the word Anna c- comes from. Well, that was sort of interesting to me. Um, <laughs> um, but then a year and a half ago, something happened that changed my mind about all that, um, and I wrote a poem about it. Um, I'd run across two poems in a college um, magazine. Uh, They were so good, uh, I couldn't believe that a student had written them. They were so mature, so sharp, no waste words, full of anguish, a little touch, possibly even suicide in it. Uh, I happened to learn her name, and I decided, as a former teacher of so-called writing, uh, that I should get in touch with her. and let her know how good she was. I found out that she was really in political science and in foreign affairs. I'd only taken two courses in the English department, which probably was a good thing. Uh, So, well, that's all right, but she, you know, I remember how frightened I was that I would never get up to where Wordsworth and Shelley was. So um, uh, I got in touch with her, and at first she said, no, I invited her to my home, Roundwind. That's an Indian name for a tornado and there's a chief named Roundwin who lived where I live now and um, she said no she couldn't come and I kind of liked that I thought well that's good sense on her part <laughs> God knows what kind of a guy she I turn out to be for and um, but then about three four weeks later she wrote a note said yes yeah, she'd like to come and visit Roundwin and so this is what happened. I the day after she, uh, she, she visited me, uh, some lines occurred to me while I was sitting on the porch on doors and I started taking them down and this is what came about. When the doorbell rang, I jumped a foot in my blue chair. She was here, she was here. The doors opened, I called. She stepped inside, smiled and said hello. I waited for her at the foot of the red stairs. Uh, My house, by the way, is a berm house. It's built into the hill, and there's two feet of dirt on top of it. You drive up the backside, and then you walk down to the front where there's glass windows and glass doors. Her slim, curved legs found the carpeted steps all the while that she smiled down at me. You have an interesting house, all stone. Yes, and now that she'd come, it was a magic house. It went beyond her golden beauty. It went to who she was, what she felt like to me the original yellow bird, her essence of being far back in her fleshes, the spirit bird of my Siouxland. As I showed her to the house, she smiled to herself, about all the books on the walls, paused to pick out a title, touched the three stars on my basketball blanket. She shared asparagus and lettuce from my garden, slowly sipped wild bergamot tea, listened to my recitals of joys, told of her own happy times, swung her swivel chair back and forth at her end of the table, delighting in the birdsong rising up the hill and the fireflies beginning to show in the grass, lingering and lingering at my board like me hating to end the evening. The next day, some more lines showed up. Every evening, I sit in my swivel chair, alone at my long blue table, and when I look up, in fa- look up in fantasy, there you are slowly swinging around in your chair to look out at my curving green valley. Every evening I sit in aching silence waiting for you to speak up. Call me by name, you the fantasy, ask me if I'm all right, am I happy? And when I look up in fantasy, I sometimes see your lively eyes, your full lips thinking and ready to challenge, your tongue offering that final healing word. Your aureal gold hair falls to your slender shoulders, your long, tan arms gesture to make a point, your slim limbs and, then, uh, and toes push you around and the woman's swivel chair at my table. You fall silent with me, yet tell me with your silence you like me. Soon you rise slowly. I must go, you say, long past your bedtime. I hate to see you go. How can I let you go? After all this, I must have a hug, too. And last, it is no longer a fantasy. It is real. You are smiling. You embrace me. In the name of love, don't fade away of me now. I want your slim, limber, lengthy stride with me forever. 30 years from now, I'll be gone with me be will go all my memory of you and if you choose to forget me gone too will be any memory uh, any memory of my memory of you and then the next day some more lines a few of them showed up the swivel chair at your end of the table you want to remember now this is a fantasy and this is a white goddess this is not a real person by this time the, swi- <laughs> the swivel chair At your end of the table still rests half turned away like you left it when you rose to go and you decided to call it a day now I'm waiting for your hallucinate ghost to have something more to say and then supposedly this is what she says the world is no wiser with all us thinkers here yet without the thinkers there'd be no knowledge anywhere there ever was a world The universe itself does not think What really can allege there ever was any mass seen or unseen actual or virtual against what hearts edge? Well I guess I can never have her they Her relatives and the other eight muses will turn her down And, uh, but of course, in the meantime, she has me because I'll keep writing for her. Thank you very much.
0: writer who has the unenviable task of following Fred is James Welch, the fine novelist from Montana, author of Winter in the Blood, The Death of Jim Loney, and Fool's Crow.
5: She was aware that there was little to fear in me. I was a dreamer, and she'd released me into my dreams as only my mother could. Matters with my wife were too sexually complicated for her to be my mother, and though there had been times when I'd felt that this would be convenient, what an absurd thought I saw now, a boy's thought. I knew I never could have accepted my wife above me or under me in that role. My mother had appeared este- instead in Estrelaria. How many times had I seen my mother's legs drawn together in this way as she sat back to rest from scrubbing a floor, rubbing an arched wrist over her forehead, shaking back her hair. And now it occurred to me that she was Estralaria size, no taller, and a sudden physical incur- incursion of height through my limbs readjusted me. It wasn't a tropical landscape I'd glimpsed, but the country of my childhood. These were the fields and the hills and the turtle green buttes of North Dakota. That was the hilly mass of hawk's nest in the distance, its creased and shimmering slopes piling over one another toward the sky. This was my mother's gift to me, a vision of this land in its endless configurations from the center of a faithful family. As long as I retained this vision, I was sure I would walk across a place of my own in this countryside someday. Perdone me, she whispered, and moved her feet. Perdone me, I said. And then I shook my head at her and walked on by. And now I feel the scroll and swirl of the topography I've recently passed through and I'm dropped back a further notch into the present at this desk where I work when I'm not working the fields of this farm. My wife and I are separated again not in that parlance of lawyers, but by 2,000 miles. We've spent the winter in the east, and I've returned early to prepare this place for her and our children. During the drive back, every mile of highway reminded me of her, and I realized that everything I was seeing, I'd seen several times with her, so that I wasn't able to take in any of the landscape as separate from her, or I saw details of it, or the panorama surrounding those those details, at least partly, through her eyes. There were moments when I felt that she was beside me, looking out, or lying with her head in my lap, or speaking with excitement about the potential for our lives that the vistas of a trip always opened up in us, as if in promise that we could become as renewable as the changing countryside. The physicality of her presence was so alarming at times I started to pull over. I saw her in different clothes at different ages, with her hair in different styles, but always with the same spirit that was in her when she turned to me from her friend in a darkened bar where we first met, Projecting herself all the way around me and a long way ahead with a smile as generous as any of Estrelaria's, as if she were traveling now in that spirit from the Pacific coast to meet me in my journey westward until the miles between us only extended her everywhere so that she seemed the weaving of the entire landscape. My love for this land is, of course, my love for a woman. She is this countryside, she is this continent, joined by Estralaria's dark country to that shapelier, shapelier continent extending south. She's my developed path, my fruitful auditor, my only faithful one, the one for whom this is spoken for, and for whom it remains speaking when all the rest has fallen away to reveal that other side, my wife.
0: That's our Great Plains evening. Thank you very much for coming, and I'd like to thank Sharon Oles and the NYU Creative Writing Department for helping us with this event. Good night.